Welcome to Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell, and you're listening to Episode 1, Season 4. Some quick admin notes. If you listened to the last episode of Season 3, you heard me say that I'd be taking a long break from podcasting. Well, clearly that didn't happen. After being encouraged by some friends and colleagues and realizing how much meaning and value I find in having and sharing these conversations, I'm back at it. I'm really excited to share this season with you, which I hope is our best yet. Today's episode kicks off with a new series, what I'm calling Voices of HKIA. HKIA stands for the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Afghanistan. And this series, which we'll revisit with different guests throughout the season, explores the massive non-combatant evacuation, or NEO, that the U.S. and other nations conducted there in August 2021. I'd like to briefly explain why I chose to make this series. I don't think the Marine Corps, the U.S. military, or the American people have really come to grips with what happened at HKIA, and I certainly don't think we've come even remotely close to all we can or should learn from that experience. I'd offer that there are legions of studies, books, and articles waiting, needing to be written about HKIA on topics like decision-making, discipline, ethics, logistics, social media, leadership, fatigue, joint interagency and intergovernmental operations, trauma, and so much more. This series seeks to both commemorate the deeds and sacrifices of those U.S. service members who were on the ground and help us learn from them. If these conversations benefit any past, present, or future service members, or help the average American better understand what things were really like at HKIA, then I think we will have achieved our goal. Our guest today is Major Samuel McGrewry, the Operations Officer for 1st Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment, or 1-8. As a captain at HKIA, Sam led Alpha Company 1-8, the 1st Marine Rifle Company, on the ground. Here's his bio. Sam commissioned in the Marine Corps on December 15, 2011, after successfully completing officer candidate school in August of that year. He earned a bachelor's degree in history from Louisiana State University in December 2011. Upon earning his commission, he reported to the basic school, TBS, in June 2012. After graduating from TBS, he was selected to attend the infantry officer course and graduated from there in March 2013. Sam then reported to 2nd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, 27 for short, in April 2013. In June of that year, he reported to Company E to serve as a platoon commander. In September 2014, he deployed to Al-Jabber, Kuwait, as part of the Ground Combat Element of Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force Crisis Response Central Command 14.1. The next month, he forward deployed to Al-Assad Air Base, Iraq, to conduct fixed site security and was attached to his Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha as part of Special Operations Task Force, Iraq. Sam returned from that deployment in April 2015. He was then assigned as 27's Battalion Assistant Operations Officer. In March 2016, he assumed the role of Executive Officer for Company G. He then deployed as part of the Ground Combat Element for Special Purpose MAGTAF Crisis Response Central Command 16.2 to the Baghdad Embassy Complex to conduct fixed site security. He returned from that deployment in October 2016. Sam next executed orders to Wounded Warrior Battalion East in 2017 and served as the Operations Officer and Company Commander for Company B. During this time, he assisted wounded, ill, and injured service members through the Recovery Care Program. Upon completion of this assignment, he checked into 1-8 in January 2020. While at the battalion, he served first as the Weapons Company Commander and then became the Alpha Company Commander and executed a deployment with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit from April to September 2021, and it was during this deployment that the HKIA NEO occurred. After returning from the deployment, he assumed his current duties as the Battalion Operations Officer. 
on a personal note, I first met Sam in 2012 while he was a second lieutenant at the basic school. We reconnected in July of this year when I was running a workshop for 1-8, and I'm really glad and grateful to be back in touch with him and to have the conversation you're about to hear, though I do wish it were under happier circumstances. I won't sugarcoat things. There are parts of our conversation that are hard to listen to, but I think it's necessary to hear if we're going to learn from the experiences of our service members at HKIA and more broadly from the war in Afghanistan, the longest conflict in America's history. I want to stress that Sam's views are strictly his own and don't reflect the views of his battalion, the U.S. Marine Corps, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. One other note before we get started. In addition to Sam's conversation, I've recorded interviews with other HKI Marines, including one of Sam's former fire team leaders and a fellow 1-8 company commander. I'll also be chatting soon with a Marine who is at HKI with Combat Logistics Battalion 24, and I plan to interview other members of 1-8, as well as Marines from 2nd Battalion 1st Marines who are also present at the airport. So, without further ado, here's our conversation with Sam. All right, Sam, thanks so much for joining us and really looking forward to tonight's conversation. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start with some contextual questions. The first being, when planning started at the 24th MU for the HKIA mission, how long had you been in command of Alpha 1-8? So I got to uh, 1st Battalion 8th Marines in January of 2020. Had weapons company initially, was in weapons company until roughly about May, May 19th, I think to be exact, of 2020. So by the time we really started looking at planning for everything. It would have been July. There was some minor planning going on prior to that. And some of that I attribute to my OPSO doing a great job leaning forward into a lot of the indications and warnings we were getting. But the real nug work and planning that went down generally started in, in July. So I had been in command for a little over a year of Alpha Company. Could you talk about what your deployment with the 24th MU was like prior to heading to the airport? Where had you been? What sort of things had you been doing? Yeah, so we had a a pretty strange workup with COVID, definitely. There was a lot of decisions that were made specific to when we left. Typically, you'll do Comp 2X, and then you'll come back for a little bit, and then you'll set out to sea, right? Mm -hmm. We did what we call Comp 2X and Go, where... You know, you, you come back to the port, you get what you need, and then and then you head out. So that was around, you know, late March, beginning of April, when we kind of shoveled off there. And the first place we went to was the United Kingdom. We did a bilateral training event, just speaking to Alpha Company specifically, mm-hmm. bilateral training event with the Royal Marines there in the Dartmoor training facility, really kind of certifying again and going back over some of our uh, lower level tasks, 1,000 to 4,000 level. And then uh, from there, there was some other exercises that the MU conducted up in the North Sea mm-hmm. and then ported in Rota on the way through the Straits of Gibraltar. And then from there, went straight over to Greece. And then while in Greece, we were in Suda Bay, had like about seven to 10 day port call there. And then from there, we got the order to Secretary of Defense orders book to go into Fifth Fleet. Sometime in Sixth Fleet, not too many training events initially. That was end of May when we went through the ditch there. The Suez Canal ended up in the Red Sea, and then we conducted a training event in Saudi Arabia. The battalion commander's intent was to try to replicate 29 Palms as much as possible, seeing how we didn't get to get a lot of live fire. 
being a Lejeune unit, you know, you don't get as much. I know the commanding general has changed a lot of that with some of the, the live fire opportunities that are now available. But at the time, I hadn't even had a uh, company live fire attack yet. So main focus was platoon level, just because the space and our gunner did an uh, outstanding job getting the space available and building the ranges out there for us. And the premier focus was platoon, combined arms, live fire event with medium machine guns, mortars, and things of that nature. June is when we came out of that uh, at the very end. And then July, we were supposed to go back through to Suda Bay. And that's kind of like when everything kind of started to unravel or, or speed up, if you will. Right at the end of June, beginning of July, we start planning. We start steaming towards the Gulf of Oman and then push up into the uh, Straits of Hormuz. But uh, I'll, I'll kind of stop there because there's there's some significant things that kind of happen in between that kind of show the red lines and, and the things that are, are, are being crossed as we, we steam towards Kuwait. What sort of training, if any, did Alpha 1A get to execute in preparation for HKIA? I mean, were you doing anything as far as crowd control, ECC operations, airfield security? What what did that look like, if, if at all? Yeah. So with respect to that, again, my, my battalion commander, my battalion operations officer, I think they did a phenomenal job of outlining task organization. We had a very regimented plan by phase, like how we were going to phase in. And that really drove the specific training plans that we needed to have. Some of these were different courses of action, depending on how big of a size, light, medium, or heavy. But all in all, each company, because we ended up taking H&S and some of the other companies and making them provisional rifle companies, had to get training on the NEO tracking system. So that way, if we needed to support the CLB, them being the main effort in the NEO to pull data as we process people out that, you know, every Marine at lower level could actually execute utilizing the NEO tracking system tablet. We also did a lot of crowd control training specific to setting up scenarios of like, hey, this is where the ECC is going to be. This is where the security for the ECC is going to be. And specific to Alpha Company, we were originally tasked with being the Joint Task Force QRF. Hmm. So a lot of our stuff focused on that, but we also had a lot of training with respect to QRF because we're the Hilo company for the Mew. So we were always on a QRF alert line once we went into fifth fleet. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our processes and procedures and our SOPs that we had previously built meshed well with the training plan. But one of the specific training events that we executed was just kind of like lining out all right, here's the ECC, here's the fixed site security, QRF is going to be, you know, at a location you know, centralized to, the, to there, but a little bit further away because we're not going to place QRF right next to the location. And then we took role players and then had them come through. And I think a lot of people thought it was unrealistic at the time because we thought everybody would get in, you know, nice straight lines and, you know, show us their identification and, and we would have a way to process, pull the right people in and push the right people out. And then as Marines do in most scenarios where you have role players that are played by Marines, a lot of this fights broke out. A lot of pushing and shoving broke out. And lo and behold, that was a very good example of what we would end up dealing with when we actually got to HKIA. So the training you received, it sounds like it, it did come in handy quite a bit. Definitely. I think the planning is what really helped us focus the training plan, right? So identifying and doing the mission analysis of saying like, okay, what what do we expect to deal with? You know, who can we rely on, you know, when we get there? What's the force lay down? What's the security plan? Our gunner was already forward giving us a lot of information with respect to the security, the threat vulnerability of the airfield. And then that kind of drove, okay, well, there's holes here, or this is how we would break this gate down, or this is how we would do this specific task. And then that drove 
a battalion training plan and then company training plans that allowed us to focus on those specific events. Got it. When did you get news that your company would be heading to HKIA for sure? And what was your reaction to this? How did you break the news to the company? You know, speaking about those red lines that I was talking about earlier, it's a little bit of a longer answer, right? So there's this buildup, right? You know, we kind of go into the Gulf of Oman, we're heading to the Straits of Hormuz. And at the time, we actually, me and the LAR company commander were, were on, on the LHD, and we were actually going to have to execute a plan to go reinforce the embassy. That was kind of like the first like wake-up call of like, oh, wow, this is real. Like, right. assemble the cat is not just for training right now. This is, like, we, we may fly off the ship with whatever we have and fly over to Pakistan and go right into the embassy. So that was definitely a little bit of a wake-up call. So kind of message the Marines, hey, this is what's going on. It wasn't really until we got to Kuwait, and we got to Kuwait at the end of July, beginning of August, that we started getting more indications and warnings, started doing our training plan. And then it was, I think, the, the night of the 12th when all the media broke out. And the, the, you know there was a lot of messaging that, hey, there's these Marines that are here. They're going to go. They're going to reinforce the airfield and go into Afghanistan and conduct a non-combatant evacuation is when we, we started to realize like, okay, this is going to happen. And that really, I didn't really get to see my Marines during that time. And that was somewhat by design. I didn't want to alarm anybody right away. I, I said, Hey, you know, make sure we have our gear prepped, make sure we do PCCs, PCIs. I did put them somewhat into an alert status during that period, but it wasn't until we decided, okay, this is the play we're going with that we had built. And that was my company going in first to establish the QRF. So that way, if there was a contingency that happened, that we were already postured, had at least an understanding of the ground that we could do our piece in the overall mission. And that was roughly about, I would say, 22 to 2300 on the 12th local time in Kuwait. And at that point, the Marines were sleeping. It's happening. There was no point for me to wake anybody up. I think I pulled the platoon commanders in. I told them a little bit. I told them to you know, keep a close hold for right now, just in case something changed. And then I got told 08 basketball court, load magazines, and we're going to go. My own personal thoughts, it seemed real because you know I've had instances where things like this have happened in my career prior, but I still kind of had a skepticism that like, you know, maybe it won't happen, maybe it won't. But it definitely had that feeling, that heavy feeling of like, okay, what do I do? So I I remember, you know, I called my wife, let her know as much as I could, you know, with respect to the security, you know, OPSEC, all of those things and, and let her know that I, I may not be calling her for a little while and not to worry and not to worry about the news and everything's going to be fine. And then uh, I sat in my room and uh, looked at my gear and was like, well, I think I got a pack. Well, I got some time. I think I'll, I'll wait, right? I'll get a little bit of rest and then I'll wake up in like an hour or so and I'll pack my gear. And uh, I got I got a signal message at zero three that the timeline had changed to zero six, and I remember I walked over and we were in these little chews on on out in Al Jabber Kuwait, and I knocked on my first sergeant's door and I said, hey first sergeant, hey go wake the boys up, we got to be on the basketball court jamming magazines in uh, less than three hours, and I think that's when I really really knew that this was for real, and I think the Marines really knew it was for real when they started breaking out ammo crates. And they started jamming magazines on the basketball court in Al Jabber. What was the mood of the company as this is happening? They're on the basketball courts. They're getting the ammo out. How would you describe the atmosphere? I mean, you could you could definitely cut it with a knife for sure. There was de- you could definitely feel a little bit of uneasiness, but you could also feel a lot of happiness too. And it's weird to say that, but I think a lot of the Marines were excited to go, you know, be employed. I think that means a lot to a junior Marine 
here we are in this deployment that we, you know, it's going to be, oh, we're going to go to Greece. We're going to go to all these great European countries. We're going to have a great time. And, you know, one of the things that my battalion commander always said was, you know, the Mew goes and sees awesome Liberty ports. They go help good people and they hurt bad people. And I think that, you know, we didn't really, I think a lot of the junior Marines didn't really think that those last two were going to happen. You know what I mean? And rightfully so. Like who knew that, you know, January of 2020, that we would be, you know, 18 months later on a basketball court in Kuwait jamming magazines to go do a Neo. Mm-hmm. So you definitely saw a bunch of emotions spread across the force. I think there was a little bit of surprise because I didn't really spin them up and say, you know, hey, get your gear ready. We're going now. So they were somewhat well rested, which is another reason why I chose to do it the way I did. But yeah, that's the general emotion out there. What was your understanding of the situation on the ground before arriving at the airport? So we had been following the situation in Afghanistan really like April and May, like right when we started the deployment, just, you know, just little updates that were, were in some intelligence products. And uh, we would, you know, go hunt through uh, some of the super websites that are out there to just see what's out, see what's available, see, see what information we can brief the Marines on what's going on in the world, right? Because a Marine on a ship, having uh, not much to do besides train, go to the gym and eat food can get bored very quickly and, and can kind of lose sight of what their purpose is. And so uh, we definitely use that as a catalyst to keep Marines engaged and informed. And one of the things that we noticed was all the districts that had fallen. Yeah, some of the areas that were still generally open. And we knew Mazar-e Sharif still had some places open. There was a plan to go to the periphery sites at one point and pull people out from the periphery locations. And generally what we knew was that the Turks owned, you know, majority of the flight line. They, they owned the northern portion of HKIA. We knew that there were some portions of HKIA that were owned by the Afghan Air Force. Some other agencies owned some compounds there. There was a embassy compound. But really what I'm getting at is it was very compartmentalized. Yeah. And the information we were getting back from our, our battalion gunner was that there was a lot of chiefs and not a lot of Indians. And that resulted in a lot of confusion in who was overall in charge of just HKIA itself, right? Before a Marine element got there, we knew Admiral Baisley was there. We knew that they, they had a, a small company that was his that kind of QRF, and they had a platoon at the embassy. We knew the embassy was still open, and we knew generally what the security laydown was with respect to the Afghan Border Patrol, Afghan Army, and police. So we had a general understanding. We actually had studied the map a lot. That was one of the things that I drove home to the Marines was that like, if we can't, in training, we can create these scenarios that are physical in nature, right? We're we're placing people in a fixed site security situation. We're going through trigger lines. We're going through reporting of their post, building a range card. What are their escalation of force procedures? What are their ROEs? But one of the things that I forced them to do was to, to have the map and we would do a TDG of the map. Okay, what does this look like? What is this area called, right? What are these aprons, right? To study it because we knew that it was going to, we would have to quickly build situational awareness in a rapidly deteriorating situation just from knowing that NEOs are never, they're never at an opportune time, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not like you're going to have this long, this ability to have a long analysis once you get on the ground. So I think that really did help our understanding of the situation on the ground before we went. When you're building the TDGs, you're looking at the map, did you have any sense of where you might be placed at the airport? Or was it, let's try this part of the airport, let's do something, let's do a scenario over here. What was informing 
the design of these exercises? I think what was informing it was was really, okay, what do we need, right? Because that was one of the things that, you know, the battalion commander had gone in July with some of the, you know, the joint task force staff and gone and done an assessment, right? And he came back and he informed us, hey, this is what we saw. This is what the gunner had showed him. This was how many vehicles there are. These were some of the buildings. So we had a general idea that there was going to be a place for us to stay. We'd most likely be in North Hkaya. And we had a general idea that there would be enough vehicles for us to have some vehicles for our ability to be mobile, right? Because I think what we assessed and really what I was trying to draw out of the TDG was, all right, what is this distance that we would have to go? If we have to go to Camp Alvarado and we can't go on the flight line or we, we have to go down this road, all right, then we need to know the access to this gate. We need to have these authorities to go to this place or like this place is very compartmentalized. All right. How would we clear that? So I think what that output was, was me going back to my commander and my operations officer and saying, all right, if you want me to effectively do QRF, I need to have these assets. You know, I need to have two gun trucks and a, and a, a troop carrier, or I need to have, I need to be in this centralized location if you want me to be able to, to touch all of these things and really trying to frame the platoon commander's mind that this isn't something where we can just run and we can go walk somewhere and get it done. We can do that, but it's going to take this much time. And that's not QRF. That, that, that is just a reaction force. Got it. Uh, so, so that was kind of like what I was trying to drive at with the TDGs. And then also the Kim's game, right? Of being able to keep in mind what the terrain looked like. So that way, when we got there, it wasn't as foreign. Sure. Sure. So you're, you're trying to do as much familiarization free getting on the ground as, as you can. You're using the imagery. Yep. It was interesting. You were, you're asking the Marines, you know, what is this? What, what's this terrain feature? Or it sounds like also talking about distances and, and trying to get them as spun up as, as they can prior to getting boots on the ground. So your company arrives at HKIA at 0200 or thereabouts on, on 14 August, a Saturday. Your company is the first Marine combat unit on the scene. Would you talk about that first day? I mean, how did this situation align with or differ from what you had been told and what you expected? Yeah. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing that I'd like to touch on before we get to that point. It'll kind of allude to some stuff later, but I remember we were supposed to leave kind of midday. I can't remember the exact time out of, we had to take a bus from that basketball court to this place called Ali Salim and then fly out of there on a C-17. And you could tell that there was a, there was a precedence for C-17s already, right? Like there's you know, people getting bumped off, there's equipment getting moved up. There's, there's a little bit of confusion, like rightfully so there's a lot of friction going on because we're trying to push as many people as we can to Afghanistan and we're just the first flight. So, I mean, by the time we took off, I mean, we had taxied for a very long period of time and then we finally get there in, you know, zero two in the morning and, you know, you don't know what to expect. The Marines are, you know, passing out on this flight because they've been traveling all day. I mean, getting up at zero three to zero two, not much sleep. And I remember it was very much like a normal or RSO and I, I mean, you you get off the plane, there's the kind of like camp commandant for the joint task force. He links up with us. He's like, Hey, put your bags over here, get on this little tram. We're going to take you over here. You can't walk on the apron, you know, all this, you know, very technical things and, and regimented procedures. And then we have to go check in masks, all that piece because COVID. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say, you're you're talking about COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, you're, you're like, what world am I in right now? Like this is, we're about to be in crisis. And it, it, it was almost kind of like a mental punch, right. Where you're like, all right, uh, I need to kind of get out of this because I can't, I can't sit in this. This is too slow right now. 
you could tell that the commanders, the operations officers, all of them chopping at the bit to figure out what's going on, what the next step is, because the plan was to have C-17 after C-17 right behind us to rapidly build up combat power. And I remember, you know, we come in, we have a quick planning meeting, we kind of figure some stuff out. It's, it's, it's whiteboard. Hey, get on the whiteboard. All right, what are we doing over the next 24 hours? All right, hey, we need to get vehicles. All right, cool. Hey, this guy, go over here, do this. Our operations chief did a phenomenal job of keeping people on task. And really, initially, we're like, all right, cool. We should have the next company here in about eight hours, you know, eight to 12 hours. They, you know, they were, they were leaving right behind us. We had the timetables. We're coordinating back with Kuwait. And what we started realizing was that was not going to be the case. Like things were slowing down. And I think the first thing we did was got situated. We found a small, like kind of walled off compounded living area. We kind of took that. Nobody was living in it. So we got in that space. And then uh, it was really just kind of like, all right, Marines, I just need you to go tour the area, get familiar, go around in, in fire teams, take note of where the, the posts are, take note of you know where the terminal is, where the jock is, get familiarized with your local area. So that way, if things start to go awry, we can at least have a location where we can come back together and consolidate, and then we can plan from and push out. And it seemed like a good spot. We were right next to kind of like a parking lot that had a bunch of vehicles. And then really it was just kind of figure it out, right? Like, you, you, hey, who's got these vehicles? Oh, these army guys got these vehicles. Hey, can I get this many? Or go talk to the DOS, can I get this many vehicles? Can I, you know, where can I store my ammo? Where where am I doing all this stuff, right? Because, you know, while, while the FOPS team with Gunner and, and one of our air officers did a phenomenal job, you could tell that they were definitely dealing with a lot of friction of like, who owns what, you know, this, you know, kind of pissing contest. And it, it, it really became like, just start taking what you need and, you know, getting with the right person that, that took some time. And you could tell there was, you know, a little bit of formality with things. Like I'm having to fill out SARS to get access to computers. And I'm like, what are we doing? You know what I mean? Like the, the, we're what's, on the edge of a crisis. On, yeah. Like what's happening yeah, in I, your I, head I, as, as yeah, you're having to I, do this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I, I don't need to be focused on this, you know? And then it's, you know, my battalion commander's like, all right, Sam, you need to go over and you need to figure out QRF. You're taking QRF over from, you know, this army unit. And he's like, I want you to figure out QRF tomorrow. Like you're taking it over 1200 tomorrow. I don't care. Like we need to get this done. And I'm like, Roger that, sir. I'll figure it out. So go over there and they got this giant CMR. It's like a, you know, my, my XO is, is having a, a XO nightmare. Uh, if you will, like, he's like, sir, they have 55 machine guns. And all this ammo, there's just stuff everywhere. Nothing's organized. And I mean, the 10th Mountain guys were great. I, I, I'm not trying to, to 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 frame them in a bad light, but but they had a lot of things that that we had to take over, you know. And uh, they had their procedures in place, you know. And and they were they were well to do with like what the area was and what their job was. And it's that's not something that you get done in 24 hours, or or really when you start talking about when that call was made, like 12 hours, 12 12 to 18 hours. So that, that was definitely a challenging problem framing, right? Of like, okay, well, how do I, how do I eat this elephant? You know, I know it's one bite at a time, but what, where do I start? And to make matters even funner or worse or whatever you want to call it, sometime around that evening, I get called back over to the jock and, you know, my opso is like, Hey, I need a platoon up at the terminal right now. You're processing people. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, the embassy's breaking down. And, you know, it, this is not even 24 hours in the deck. And luckily, I, like I had said, we had trained on the NEO tracking system. I looked at one of my young platoon commanders, my first platoon commander. I said, hey, get your guys up there, hold security and help out 
the limited COB personnel we have on the ground, and we will process these Americans that are coming from the embassy. And I think it, the initial, you know, swag was like 200, 250 people. And I think it ended up coming out to like 600 that were coming back and forth. And, you know, you had the uh, task force talent, which was they're great guys, UH 60s, 47s and 64s that were uh, doing all of the runs to and from the embassy that, that evening. And I think that platoon was out there until, you know, zero three, zero four in the morning processing people. And, and, you know, here I am trying to come up with a plan to take over QRF. And now I've just degraded one of my platoons with just sleep. Right. And, and, and they're already engaged. So it's like, all right, well, they're on rest. Second and third platoon, you're going to go over here. One's going to be on react. And the other one's going to learn how the how this army unit operates. And we're going to figure it out. And, that, and, that, and that's how we we went into the 15th. Hmm. What's a weapons platoon doing during this time? So our weapons platoon, we retask organized specific to the mission by attaching the medium machine guns and keeping the mortars generally in headquarters as a, you know, CASVAC slash EPW element. Because there wasn't really an opportunity to really take and set up an MFP in support of that. And we knew the mortar platoon, like the 81 millimeter mortar platoon, one section was going to come in and fulfill that role. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you start getting down to authorities, urban environment, things of that nature, I didn't really need a 60 millimeter hip pocket mortar. I really needed somebody to help either reinforce a unit or to act in a, a specialized manner, almost if you were like doing a raid. So, I mean, I know a lot of infantry officers on here will tell me, yeah, well, Sam, you'd use mortars in a raid. Yeah, for sure. Uh, 100% would. But but for this specific operational environment I was in, I utilized them, that kind of facet to help reinforce as necessary and then just put the machine guns with each platoon. And then the, the and then the fist leader and weapons platoon commander and my FSO and my uh, weapons platoon sergeant really kind of used them as like action officers to go into the COC and have a rotation. So I always had somebody next to the opso because we're the only company right now. So as things start to, to come, right, we're expecting, oh, in eight more hours, there'll be another company. In eight more hours, there'll be another company. And it wasn't until like midday, you know, or mid morning, really, like I think around 10 hundred is when Charlie Company ended up coming in on the 15th. So utilizing them to keep SA while we're out figuring things out, working with the army, getting vehicles, you know, developing the situation, leveraging those guys to help maintain SA. And then if they needed to get in touch with us, I have somebody with G2 in there that can give me and download me information. Gotcha. So the next day, which you've alluded to, 15 August, the Afghan national government falls. And soon after that, the Afghan national defense security forces, to include those manning the southern perimeter of HKIA, flee their posts. What happens next for you and the Marines of Alpha 1-8? Yeah. So like I was saying that morning, I bedded down first platoon. I took second and third platoon, put them over with the army. And they were doing their daily routine with the army to, to understand all the other little things that they were doing around the base to support the QRF mission. Charlie Company had arrived, and I think they staged on the basketball court. And at the time, me and my company, Gunny, ordered it to fully take this QRF mission on. We actually drove in a, a little Suzuki SUV, up-armored SUV, to uh, Camp Alvarado. So I was actually on the other side of HKIA when a lot of the indications and warnings that things were deteriorating were going to happen. But I was doing that coordination face-to-face -face just to see what they needed from us 
if we were to be utilized by them in conjunction to do personal recovery, QRF or whatever with the aviation platform. And luckily us being a Hilo company, you know, we had some experience. Mm -hmm. And really when I first started to, to see things start to unravel was whenever I was at that compound and the task force talent, one of the pilots kind of turns to me and he says, Hey man, I don't know what you what, what you got going on, but we're we're getting indications that like the Gurkhas that are guarding the space right now are leaving, and we're getting indications that the Taliban are in Kabul right now. So at that point, me and my company gunner are like, well, well, we got to get back to the company. So we get in our our little up armored you know SUV that we had commandeered, and we head back to North Hkaya. And I remember we went straight to the jock. I went in, I found my battalion commander, and he's like, hey, look everything's deteriorating. There's people already starting to come towards HKIA. We didn't really know the full situation of like what had fallen. We hadn't really seen the effects of people abandoning their posts to the South yet, but we knew that we needed to really kind of like have the blood come to the heart. Right. And what I mean by that is in North HKIA is like the militarized portion of HKIA, like U S militarized portion of HKIA besides like Camp Alvarado being a U.S. embassy extension. And so one of the first calls he made was he took Charlie company. He said, Hey, we're, I'm putting you on the gates. Like, I don't care if there's Turks at the gates. I don't care if there's Turks in the towers, like you're going to go take the towers and you're going to hold security. He's like, uh, you need to take your platoon. You need to go to this gate. And it was a berm gate, which is like on the far West side of uh, North HK and it connected the Afghan air force compound. So that was kind of like the first task, first salvo, boom, go. No real vehicles. So we literally went on foot and I think it was like, you know, roughly about a mile and you're running like past people going to the DFAC, people getting coffee at Green Bean. <laughs> you know, it, it's this weird dichotomy so and, and, and you know, we're running on the road full kit, like let's go. And I remember we got second platoon over there and uh, immediately started taking sniper fire to the point where it's like breaking the ballistic glass. And so held them there. Luckily we had brought my UTVs. I had two UTVs. So I was somewhat mobile inside North HKI. We usually just kept those there to, to move around since North HKI was pretty, pretty large to just move around on foot. Hopped in one of those, went back to the COC, and then it was like, hey, new task. I need you to go shore up these gates. And uh, me and the CEO looked over a map. There was a like a military working dog gate, which was on the end, end of the flight line. There was Camp Alvarado, which we knew was, you know, all the all those posts were being abandoned because the Gurkhas are I think they might've been given an order to exfil the area. And we knew that task force talent was over there. We needed to protect the aircraft. And then there was the uh, Afghan air force gate that we were specifically told to go set up a defensive position on. So immediately it was like, all right, sir, if I'm going to execute this plan, I need to get this platoon off of this gate because my plan is to spread these platoons out into area defense, one at each one of these locations. And then I'm going to centralize myself over at Camp Alvarado with Task Force Talon because I'll have communications back to you over multiple means. He's like, got it, make it happen. So Charlie Company comes over, relieves second platoon off the berm gate. At this point, poor first platoon, wake them up because it's right around noon. Hey, get in trucks, we're going. And luckily we had built a, we had quickly built a decent relationship with the 10th Mountain. I think they were a little frustrated with us, but uh, they worked well with us getting us out to the Afghan Air Force gate. And uh, I remember being in the back of a, a bear, uh, as they called them, and uh, I hadn't eaten uh, all day, uh, had a little bit of water. And uh, we started getting the calls, ground attack, ground attack, ground attack, incoming, 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 you know, all the sirens that go off on a lot of these bases. 
got to get out of the vehicles, you know, take cover, false alarm. We end up getting these guys out. It took about two or three hours just to get these guys in trucks moving to the gate. All right. It's a gate and it, it's like a swing arm. It's not like this. Is, luckily, it was inside the compound, but they st- this road still had access to the outside. So the worry was that if they were able to climb the wall or kind of come through another area, that they could come through there and then put pressure onto the berm gate, which was located just to the west, to the east of where that gate was. So I looked at my platoon commander and I said, hey, look, orders are that nobody comes through. You're taking this gate over. I'm, I'm leaving you an interpreter. You have my radio call sign and frequency. You can raise me on these two channels. I just need two 240 space and outboard and good luck. And I had to leave my platoon commander out there with minimal information, task and purpose, fixed site security. Luckily, we had built a fixed site security SOP. We had trained to it. The Marines were prepared. So definitely uneasy as a company commander to only give your lieutenant the information that you have, which is very minimal. But I had full confidence that that platoon commander would be able to successfully execute that mission. End up coming back. And it was like, it never happened. It was, hey, pull them back. So now we're working through the process of, all right, AXO, getting vehicles, pull them back. I'm going to get mission tasking for the new task. So get them back, pull everybody in, consolidate the company back on HKIA. So they were only out there for about a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And I think what we, what we ended up assessing, the battalion commander and the gunner had gone out and they are like, hey, like, that's not a good utilization of that force at that location. It is what it is. We're pulling them back, we're resetting, we're recocking, and then we're, we're preparing for the next thing. Mm-hmm. So end up pulling them back, and I get tasked by the battalion commander that there was a breach on the southern portion of the airfield. I'm looking at the CCTV screens that are st- sitting to my left, and uh, I see a large crowd down by the southern domestic and international terminal of the flight line. And I see the polar bear, 10th Mountain, Task Force Polar Bear was their call sign. They're basically like almost like sheepdogs, right? Like trying to like corral this crowd with the vehicles. And I remember, I, I can't remember who I asked, but I was like, is that going to be a problem? And they're like, no, Task Force Polar Bear's on it. It's, it's a small breach. They're taking care of it. And I was like, okay. And so the battalion commander looks at me and he says, all right, there is reporters. They've been held hostage by defective Afghan army. You need to link up with a tier one unit and you need to provide an outer cordon for them to do a hostage rescue. So at this point, I didn't really even have time to think about the task that I was given. I was just told, hey, make it happen, get it done. Luckily, I had made some points of contact with the the unit that I was going to work with. And I immediately went back and did some quick mission planning. And we're talking like 15, 20 minute mission planning because it was like an immediate task. And so as I get back I, I give my task and purpose. We came up with a quick scheme of maneuver to wherever this aircraft was. We figured it was on the southern portion of the fly line is that we would L-shape, you know, the area with vehicles and personnel. And then we would work with the unit that we we're going to work with to, to figure out what their scheme of maneuver was. And I couldn't even get probably a breath to really determine like how I was going to get in touch with these guys besides a cell phone. And I told the platoon commanders, hey, start executing PCs, PCIs, re-up on everything water, chow, whatever we need. We don't know how long we're going to be out. They're in the process of doing PCCs, PCIs, and I get a call over these little blue radios called EADS radios. And EADS radios were like the radios that were like 
the you know airport security kind of radios like they're they're not encrypted i mean tactical communications were were pretty much they're they're okay like they worked but you know ability to recharge batteries ability to sustain we did have a headquarters platoon you know recharging batteries as best we could but with how fluid and how fast the situation was we generally relied on the eth radio mm. and a signal group chat so what ends up happening is i, I hear over the radio aztec six this is beirut six QRF, QRF, QRF. We need every able body on the flight line time now. We are we are being overrun. So in that moment, you know, you can you can sit there and you can you can try to plan it. You can sit there and you can try to come up with a scheme maneuver. But when you hear, you know, your commander's voice in the urgency of like what he's asking you to do, you, you just gotta make it happen. And I remember I ran downstairs because I was we lived in like a little loft connex box. <laughs> And uh, all the Marines are in the courtyard where they need to be doing PCs, PCIs. And I said, hey, everybody on vehicles, everybody not on vehicles, on foot, onto the flight line, apron eight. And we ended up getting everybody in vehicles uh, as much as we could. I think we had like four vehicles, three or four vehicles. Those filled up very, very quickly. I think we can only fit like maybe 20 guys. And I had about 139 Marines on the ground at the time. And uh, we ended up pushing straight through the terminal because we were trying to go through the gate and the gate was all messed up. We ended up getting, luckily we got the vehicles through and vehicles got on the flight line. At, th at this point, it's like 2,200 and we ran straight through the terminal into the abyss. And I mean, it was, we didn't know what we were going to come up on. And one memory I do have of it is that I accidentally butt dialed one of my best friends <laughs> on signal. And all you can hear is my phone in my pocket as I run across this flight line into the night. It was my good friend, the LAR company commander on the Mew. And uh, he was actually waiting in Kuwait to go. And he, I, I caught him where he's sitting on a bus with his platoon commanders. And it was almost like a, a we were soldiers kind of moment, right? Where like he, they pick up the HF signal from Vietnam. And he, he hears me running. He hears machine gun fire. He hears me yell, switch to non-lethal. He hears me yell, get online and push the crowd back. And then the the phone call ends on the other end of that phone call was what I saw, which was I come running up and, you know, the army unit is literally shooting M240 over the top of or adjacent or top of the crowd to push this crowd back and warning shots because they're not listening to commands. They're not listening to anybody. They had guys on the ground, but it was very minimal. I mean, we're talking like there's staff members from the jock out there. No real, you know, grunts, you know, guys that we train to deal with crowds. We train to deal with, you know, crowd control limited right? Limited. But usually we have riot control agents. We have riot gear. We had none of that. It was, we had our fists, we had our weapons and we had whatever we ran out in that flight line with. And one of the things I remember seeing was a, uh, a C-17 with probably about three to 400 Afghans in it. And they were like literally clawing to get into the C-17 and ripping everything they could to get in there, to get, to get out. Just the sheer desperation of those people is what we saw in that moment. And, and we realized, look, we can't deal with that. We got to stop the rest of them. Because if we don't stop them, then the runway's fouled. The runway's fouled. We can't get any more companies here. And right now, all we have is really three companies. And I wouldn't even call them full round companies either. So we did what we had to do. And we got online and pushed the crowd back. And that went till probably 06 the next morning. What's the, the composition of the crowd? Is it, is it mostly men? Is it young men? Are there women and children there? 
I mean, it's it's everything. I mean, it was it was small children, it was families, it was women. I remember seeing a woman in a wheelchair stuck on the rocks, getting trampled by the crowd, like an older older woman. There was young men, there was older men, there was people that had defected that had weapons that we took weapons off of. It was everybody, everybody, and I mean that that crowd. I think, I mean, it'd be it'd be a disservice to try to put a number on it because I couldn't even really tell, but. I mean, I would, I would, I would probably say at that moment, probably 2000, 3000 people at the time. And, you know, I think we only had like maybe 200 online and, uh, we ended up pushing that crowd all the way back to the Southern terminal and really focused them on the domestic portion of the terminal and the international terminal was to our right. And luckily the polar bear guys were great. They surged a bunch of vehicles down there. They were able to get us, you know sustainment we were able to get up sea wire but i mean there was a moment in time where i literally had to look my battalion commander in the face and like sir i don't know how to solve this problem and he looked at me and he's like hey brother neither do i but we're going to figure it out together and i think that that was very a very comforting moment in the chaos and I, I'll, I'll tell you it hurt my pride a little bit to not be able to solve a problem but that just that's just the way the situation was because they weren't going to move once we got them backed up to the the domestic terminal Mm-hmm. And there was no way that we were going to use lethal force against the unarmed crowd. There's no way we we're going to do that. And th- those Marines held their restraint the entire time. So what we ended up coming up with for a plan was CWIRE. We got a somewhat of like a PSYOPs vehicle, if you will, with a loudspeaker to be able to speak to the crowd and then uh, got them crowd in. And then the crowd just kept swelling. And some of the other stuff that we we ended up enacting was we pushed two polar bear upgun trucks on the other side of this terminal because we knew we needed to have eyes forward mm-hmm. because if we if we didn't you know they could at least be scanning who is coming in there was no cover i mean you get trained as an infantry officer that you know what cover is and you know how to move from cover to cover and there's like on a flight line there's no cover so for us you know yes we are assessing the situation in front of us and we were dealing with the situation in front of us, but we're always thinking about worst case scenario. And I don't know why, and I don't know how it didn't happen, but worst case we identified was, you know, somebody putting a, a medium machine gun in one of those buildings and just raking us because there would have been nowhere for us to go. But for some reason, by the grace of God, that didn't happen. However, those guys that were forward of us in that screen line were in a persistent gunfight with the Taliban the entire night, which inevitably put our Marines in the beaten zone of those fires. So, you know, PKM fire going right into the crowd, you know, right over the top of our heads from multiple directions. And there's nothing, there's literally nothing you can do. Because if you, if you try to combat it, you lose the crowd. If you lose the crowd, you lose the airfield. If you lose the airfield, you lose in general. So there was a lot of coordination that, that went on between polar bear to try to solve that problem. But it was a persistent gunfight for well into the night and into the morning. And, you know, there was a couple of times where they broke out and we had to maneuver and they found other holes and we had to shore those holes up. But it was just a constant game of cat and mouse. And it wasn't really I wouldn't say it was really the, you know, the women or the children that were the the main problem. It was it was the military age male, you know, gathering in groups and put, trying to push through and uh, not listening and even even using an interpreter, you know, in it. And I, I can only imagine what was going through their head. And it, it, it was very hard to disconnect yourself from that. Right. I, I got four kids, you know, like 
of all, you know, seven to, to two now, you know, I had a newborn, you know, you're watching newborns in front of you crying. You know what I mean? Uh, you see your kids' faces, you see your wife's face, you know what I mean? So that, that was definitely challenging to navigate. And the only way you were able to was just to disconnect. Right. And it doesn't mean be, you know, not sensitive to the situation you're in or to not help, but to keep your mind sharp and your mind focused, because the moment that you didn't focus is the moment you let your guard down is the moment they busted through, mm-hmm. which happened multiple times. But yeah, that, that the 15th really, really kind of like came to a, a pause. I'll call it a pause at like zero six on the 16th. And that's when we have them C-wired in. We got them calmed down. They're sitting down, but they're not moving. Really like zero three to zero six is like when they finally started to calm down. Cause gotcha. we had we had found some holes, you know, we had found, you know, some areas where they had, you know, kind of infiltrated behind us. Mm-hmm. And we were able to send some patrols out, find those, shore those up with engineers who did a phenomenal job, you know, supporting and just bringing pallets and pallets of sea wire to stop a lot of this. But yeah, it was the zero three to zero six is when it really started to kind of like die down. And we, we kind of felt like we had a little bit of a better handle on the situation. Sam, what does it look like? Could you describe how a rifle company tries and, and successfully moves as many people as you did? I mean, what, what could you paint that scene for us? I kind of attribute it to, uh, you know, almost like a phalanx. You know, you got to get online, you got to get shoulder to shoulder, you got a message, you got to tell them, hey, you can't be here. This is why. There's some of that. And then when it really comes down to it, I mean, it's at its basic roots, it turns into very much like a riot control situation as the crowd becomes more unruly, which we are trained to do to a certain degree. And one of my, my platoons was trained in non-lethal and riot control situations through, through the EOTG course. But that's the only way that you're, you're able to do it. When you are able to corral the people, they're, they're starting to come down. This is what, early morning of, of the 16th? Mm-hmm. What does the rest of that day look like? I mean, what major events happen, particularly with your company? What are some of the tough decisions you're having to make? Yeah, so 06, you start having planes land, which was a very big win. And we're expecting to see, you know, our brother companies land on the flight line and we get 82nd Airborne and we get the first company from 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines. And it was Echo Company 2-1. And fun fact that me and that company commander actually have a little bit of a, a history. We, we, we served together in 7th Marines. It was a good opportunity to see his face and know that uh, I had a guy to my, my, my left that, you know, knew what was going on. And, and, and the tough part was, you know, while they are fresh, fresh was a very relative term just because of all the things that they had to do to get there. Moving from Al Jabber, staying up, probably seeing all the stuff that we're dealing with and not knowing what they're going to come into. So, you know, they were fresh to a degree. And I think the, the immediate task that they were given was to, to kind of extend the defense on our, our left flank. And I remember specifically talking to the company commander and just saying, hey, look, man, I, I know you're tasked to come down here to do this. What I can tell you is that like nobody can understand this situation unless they're here seeing it. And what, what I absolutely need, man, is I just need you to just take my guys and just replace my guys just for 30 minutes. I don't even need an hour. I just need 30 minutes to sit down. I'm going to go behind this shed back here. I'm going to let my guys take off their Kevlars real quick. 
and drink some water behind some cover. The only little bit of cover that we had and just get some water and get some food. That's, that's all I need. And he's like, Hey man, I got you. I was like, just tell them not to touch the seawire. Tell them, you know, don't give them food or water because that's going to embed them in this location. It's going to make them not want to leave because they feel like they're getting services and that this is the place where they're going to be evacuated. Message to them that the, the best place they can go is Abbey Gate, which hadn't been opened yet, but we wanted them to start heading that direction because that was one of the first gates that we were going to open and just try to keep them calm. And I think it was 15 minutes into drinking a bottle of water and the C-17s that had just landed or one of the C-17s that would, was still over on the taxiway begins to taxi. And I think the crowd saw that and that invigorated the crowd to try again. And they broke out. I don't attribute that to the turnover. I mean, it could have been, it could have been them seeing the turnover and being like, this is an opportune time with the new people that haven't dealt with us to, to test their metal and test their ability to, to hold them back. But really it was, it was that, that C-17 that started taxiing. And as it starts taxiing, I get a call over the radio again. It, Aztec 6, Beirut 6, get your boys out here. They broke through the wire. And I mean, we're sitting there and we can see them running across the flight line in desperation. And it, I mean, at this point, it's a get up and it's a slow trudge. It's a figure it out. And there's people everywhere. And I mean, this crowd is now in the 10,000s. And so I remember we got across the flight line. We form another wall, a phalanx, if you will. And I think at this point we had started to get non-lethal. And so we did have some stinger ball grenades. We did have some foam batons, some shotguns with shotgun rounds. Actually, I don't even think we had shotguns at that point. We didn't get shotguns until later, but, but bottom line, we had some stuff to deal with the crowd and we start using some non-lethal in the crowd to not really much affect. I mean, we didn't really have CS at that point. We're launching a couple foam batons. We're throwing some stinger ball grenades and people aren't really moving. And at this point, we see this C-17 get to the end of the runway, comes down the, the opposite taxiway, heading east. And it's looking like it's getting ready to turn around and take off. At that point, there was a Apache that was in front of it that was trying to push the crowd. And that Apache got pretty, pretty low to the deck. And, and at one point, I think guys were trying to grab the wheel of the Apache and it actually yawed back and almost fouled into the C-17 that was coming down the taxiway. But, you know, again, by the grace of God, like it didn't happen. And we're like, wow, we, we, there's no way this plane can take off. That's what we all thought. There's no way that this plane is going to go wheels up and it comes back around and it starts going and it starts powering the engines up. And I was probably 50 feet from it. I mean, our Marines are like right next to it. And uh, we watch a couple of civilians get on the wheel wall. And I was like, all right, it's definitely not taking off now. And that's not what happened. And I, I think you know the outcome of, uh, of the situation, but that's generally about seven o'clock in the morning is when uh, <clears throat> the civilians fell to their death. So um, we end up getting together pushing them back, get them back in the box, get them back in front of the terminal. And the seat that this whole elaborate obstacle plan that we had built is destroyed. And it's there's, there's no rest. There's like, you're, you're like, now you have three companies because of how big the crowd is. You have an 82nd airborne company, you have alpha company, 
you have remnants of Charlie company that like those guys are on, you know, security on the post and then their rest cycle is to come out and help us, you know? So like they're, they're, no one's getting any help in this situation. And then now we have, we also have echo to one who, who's on our flank and we're just doing everything we can to hold these guys in place to just get more C-17s to land. And, uh, in that moment, I remember my battalion commander pulls into commanders and it's just like, but we, we, we gotta, we gotta figure out how to sustain this. We gotta figure out how to hold these guys. And we, we, we kind of go into a quick planning session as you know, everybody's kind of holding the crowd back. And, uh, one of the polar bear platoon commanders comes up to us and he's like, Hey man, like I got guys outside the water, outside the, the terminal here and, and they're bingo. On, they're almost bingo on fuel. They're bingo on water. They're bingo on chow. And they're down to their last couple cans of 762. So we need to get these guys back through. So we're like, all right, we'll try to like create a path and, and just pull them back. There's no need to leave those guys out there alone and unafraid. And we're talking like they're only like two or 300 meters from us. But like that's alone and unafraid in the situation. And uh, I remember the vehicles come through this little causeway, this little gated area that's in between the domestic and the international terminal. And I remember the platoon sergeant's like fighting people off of his vehicle. He's on the hood and there's people crawling onto the vehicle like World War Z. And he he's doing everything he can to not run people over and to just get his vehicle out of that situation. And I remember we ended up getting both vehicles out. Thank God. And they, they, they come through. We're still able to hold the crowd. It is holding by a thread. And, you know, the Marines are smoked. I mean, I am, you know, they say at TBS and IOC, it's going to happen when you're tired, when you're sick, when you're hungry, when you're not at your peak physical condition. And next thing you know, we start seeing Taliban come through. And it was almost like, it seemed like they were there to kind of show their presence and to like, almost like they were just there to like monitor the crowd just by their, their, their actions as they came through. But we... We're not under the impression that we're friends with them. We're not under the impression that, you know, we are partnered with them. None of of that is like they're the enemy. And so, and we've been dealing with them all night. You know, we had been in, you know, there had been a couple small skirmishes that happened, right? With the army, with a couple of our positions on the periphery. With your company? Uh, With some of the other elements that were out there. And my company was definitely part of some of the engagements where we took rounds. You know what I mean? But up until that point, we hadn't really had an opportunity to do what Marines do best and fight back, right? So I remember one of my young sergeants, you know, just a real, one of the ones that you want to go to war with, right? And he's yelling at me and he, he's like 10 feet. He's, Sir, I got guys with guns. I got guys with guns. And I was like, hey, look, man, remember your ROE. Like, he's not pointing a gun at you. We're in Afghanistan. Everyone has weapons. We can't confirm that these people that have these guns are Taliban. We took off multiple weapons off people over the entire night, like just monitor it. And, you know, worst case scenario, guys with guns in a crowd and you have no cover. Best case scenario, they end up going on to elevated terrain, which was a a, a small little loading dock where you would load like a, you know, a a vehicle to to put things onto a plane, like like a baggage truck. Mm -hmm. And so, so these guys are standing on top of this, this small little loading dock and, I was like, look, if they point a gun at you, like, I don't want you to mess around. Like you, you have the authority that's hostile intent 
you know, that is well within the ROE. I need you to execute good judgment. And, you know, that's the, the best advice I could give that young sergeant at the time. And I remember I turned to my battalion commander and I hear a lone gunshot. And one of the Taliban had pointed their weapon at us. And uh, I think it was a, I can't remember who, who exactly shot. I think it might have been a, 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 you know, one of the Army guys because he was speaking to, you know, one of the up-armored gun trucks. And at that point, the guy behind him pulled his weapon and started firing into the crowd. To which the Marines responded appropriately and neutralized the threat over the tops of the, the heads of the civilians that were, were now laying flat on the ground and running away. The Marines on the periphery of that engagement literally held their ground and stopped the civilians from getting onto the flight line and, and, and protected them from that gunfire the best that they could. And once the threat was neutralized, I believe my gunner called ceasefire, like we were on a you know, static live fire range. And the Marines put their weapons on safe, searched and assessed their area, and took a couple steps back, you know, assessed for any other threats, and went right back to crowd control. And it was a very proud moment to be a Marine, to see young men and young women exercise restraint and do their job well, because that's what they trained to do. And, you know, it was probably the, the number one fear that we all had that that would happen. And the anticipation of like, what are we going to do? And knowing that that happened, I had no doubt in my mind that my unit was going to execute good judgment and would execute the rest of this mission well based off how they performed in that moment. So it was a very proud moment as a company commander. Do you recall how large this Taliban force was? I know there were, there were guys who had gone over to this loading area. Were there other Taliban walking around or moving to different yeah. parts of the airport? So, so, so that engagement was probably about two or three. It was like a fire team size element. And I think they were just coming in there to kind of show face. And I'm assuming that at a higher level, like there was some talks going on. I can't really speak to that. But at that moment, you know, they were trying to, you know, act as if they were helping. I don't know. But either way, they pointed a weapon at us and we did what we needed to do. And we did it well and ended up having to triage a couple casualties that had taken some fire from the enemy just based off their wounds and, and, and where they were. Luckily, the Marines did not have any real situation where we uh, had any civilian casualties that we inflicted, which I was extremely uh, thankful for because, you know, that's just the you just don't want that to happen. But we were able to help those that actually did become injured as a result of that gunfight. So, yeah. And after that, it was just back and forth for another 12 hours or really another eight hours until that evening. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong here, that on the 16th, the Taliban offered to help clear the airfield of civilians. Is that correct? Yeah. So for Alpha Company, if we're sticking on, on that, what we knew at the moment was we were still under the impression that they were the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until we got back and we had gotten a lot more elements of the MU in and 2-1 and, and the 82nd, and we actually had a little bit better of a defense that we pulled back. And Alpha Company had been, been tasked to assist with helping clear the airfield. I don't ever remember specifically hearing that the Taliban were going to help clear the airfield. I know that they were going to help establish somewhat of a cordon and help with the processing is what I found out later. But in the moment, the limited word that I got for my next, that next task that I was given was to, you know, help 
clear the airfield was that the Taliban were our friends now. Not not our friends, but but really that they were going to assist with the departure of the military, right? So at that point, you know, it was kind of hard to message that to the Marines. They did it well, and they took it well, a lot more effectively than I, I thought they would for having been dealing with what they had been dealing with and, and the things that the, the Taliban had been causing up until that point and the friction that they had been causing. But, uh, you know, we did what we had to do to stay focused on the mission. And we didn't let that affect our judgment as we push forward into the, the rest of the time at HKIA. What's going on in your head when you hear the Taliban are going to assist? For me, it was a little, a little bit of confusion initially. And I think that was, you know, it w- wasn't like an immature way of looking at it. But, but for me, it was, it was more of a, like, w- what are we doing kind of thing. But at the same point in time, it was almost like a little bit of a, like, okay, I see what's happening here. And I'm not thankful for it, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm appreciative of the fact that, like, I don't have, I, that's one thing I don't got to worry about fighting. Right. You know, I can, I can unpackage that later in my life. But for right now, like that's one enemy that's taken off the battlefield. It's one enemy I still have to keep an eye on, right? Because, you know, there's still things that happen after that, you know, where we take random gunshots that, you know, could be labeled ISIS or they could be labeled Taliban or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, it wasn't my decision to make. It's just the the change to the operating environment. And I had to to find a way to to swallow the pill and deal with it. And message that to my Marines to where we aren't needlessly getting in a situation to exasperate the deal that was made, if that makes sense. No, it does. And could you talk a little more about how you message that to the Marines? I know you're probably having some cognitive dissonance. They're experiencing that, I imagine. What do you say to your guys? I kept it pretty simple. I said, hey, we're partnered with the Taliban. We're friends with the Taliban, if you want to call it that way. Like they're, they're not an enemy threat at this point and that's it. And it, I had to keep it cut and dry because I didn't have time, right? I didn't have time to sit down and explain everything in detail. And honestly, I didn't have all the details and I didn't need all the details. I just needed to give them the direction for them to clearly operate in the environment and clearly make decisions in the environment with how fast it was changing. And uh, that, that, was, that was the way I went about it. Because the more I would speculate, maybe I'm telling them something that's false. I don't know. So all I could tell them was what I knew. And what I knew was that we were, we were now partnered. They were going to help with the assisted departure. And, and that was it. And that's all they needed to know. And if they had any problems with that, like they can bring it up their chain of command and we can, we can talk about it. But right now we can't unpackage everything because we, ha- we still have things that we need to do. What's the mental, emotional, physical state of the company right now? How's morale? How are you doing at this point? Um, I would say, you know, when I ran on that flight line, I had half camel back of water and some nicotine in my pocket. And uh, my body was deteriorating very fast. Where I could, I, I, I would bust open an MRE, whether it was a, you know, a German MRE, American MRE, wherever I could find food, I would stuff it in my face and I'd keep going. But the sleep deprivation was probably like the worst thing that was happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I attribute whatever sleep that we did get was 100% my first order in my company, Yoni. Just 
being those good advisors to be like, sir, like, I know we have to do these things. I know you're getting tasked. I know the company has to go do this, but can we find creative and inventive ways to, to get rest where we can? And, you know, that started to become a very real factor in where we were. Because if you look at the timeline, you know, 1400, zero to get a couple hours of sleep, you know, not, not for one platoon, one platoon only got two hours of sleep, you know, immediately go into, you know, getting ready for the next day on the flight line, all like up operating all day on the 15th, all day on the 16th. So by the time we get back and we're like, Hey, go get your company down and then come report to the COC, get the company down, report to the COC. Hey, you got to go assist in clearing the flight line specifically with some other units that were tasked to do that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's it, it becomes a game of, all right, my CEO said, clear the flight line. He said, bring my whole company out there. And I'm, I'm sure he's probably going to laugh when he hears this. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, all right, can I do that with a platoon? Can I do that with, you know, whatever? What contingencies can I do to be able to at least get one platoon a couple hours? And if if it's one of those things where I create a rest cycle to where I take two and I leave one, you know what I mean? Can I get it done? And we found ways to do our best to do it. But then you think of the human factors, right? These guys just went through, you know, a lot. And now they're going to have the monotony of a Neo and and the, the full spectrum of the Neo, right? So some combat operations, some humanitarian operations, you know, fixed site security, getting shot at randomly and not being able to shoot back, you know, getting in a gunfight, watching people fall off a plane. Like, the, like all those factors are coming into play, right? And now they're, it's like, hey, go get a couple hours of sleep. And like, you know, I can tell you, I, I know a lot of Marines because like for me, you know, how do you turn your brain off, right? How do you tell yourself, go to sleep? I mean, some, you know, some of it was easy because of the sleep deprivation, but, you know, some of it was hard because you're now having to unpackage a lot of things because you can sit there and think. So what I ended up doing was finding you know, just opportunities here and there just to get guys a couple hours. And, and it's sad to say that was like a win. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was, that was, that was in the win column. So when does the rest of one eight arrive? And it's, it's, it's really like the 16th, like the, the, the afternoon, the 16th and the beginning of the 17th is, is really when the, the last bit of the last bit of the battalion, the BLT really arrives. And it, it I don't have the exact times for every single one of them, but I, I, I knew I started seeing a lot of familiar and friendly faces and welcome faces as they arrived. But yeah, I think, I think full up round on the 17th, we had majority of the BLT on the deck. Do you get any relief, any rest at this point? Are you still just on the line trying to maintain some order? So, we, so once, once we got back on the, the evening of the 16th, we went and assisted with clearing the flight line, we got back from clearing the flight line and securing the flight line at like zero one in the morning, zero two in the morning. I go back, I brief my commander, I, I brief the Joint Task Force commander, and let him know like, hey, flight line secure. You know, these are these are the gaps we plugged. And then the battalion commander was like, hey, look, you know, go get some rest. But tomorrow, you know, in the, in the next, or really today the 17th, you're going to go back out and you're going to set a defense up on the south side of the, uh, you know, airfield. And so that was going to generally be kind of close to Abbey Gate was the initial planning. And I think the battalion commander ended up going and checking 
you know, what had been secured and, and, and what kind of physical security was down there with one of the, uh, the Afghan units that had not defected. And they had identified that a lot of the holes had been plugged. Uh, however, in order to, you know, make sure there was some further layer of security, LAR and Alpha Company ended up establishing a defense that next morning at 08 on the 17th. And that defense was just to the north of the terminals, both the domestic and international terminal. And we were, we were basically sitting in, in some, some grass, you know, it, you know, ap- like along the aprons, there's like those, those breaks in the apron. And we, we, we basically established our defense right there, just north of that position, just in case there was a further push of civilians that would try to push through the terminal, we would have a line to hold them in place. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that there was some sort of, you know, U.S. military presence there to deal with the potential of a, uh, a breakage. So you set up in the D, as far as you know, is the rest of 1A, and it sounded like LAR was with you as well, but is the rest of 1A manning north and east gates by this point? Is that happening? Yeah. So so I believe at that point, 2-1 ended up taking all of Abigate. And that was like a NATO-led effort down there where you had the UK, you had a couple other players down there at Abbey Gate. Then you had Charlie Company at Eastgate. They were able to consolidate and head down to Eastgate. Uh, you had Bravo Company at the North Gate. And then the Already Battery had the Comfort Area, which was just kind of like in between North and Eastgate, just the east portion of HKIA. And there, there was some holding areas where when people would get through on the, the southern portion through Abbey or Eastgate, they would get staged at the comfort area. So that's generally how the laydown went. And then the reconnaissance company was initially doing some defensive operations in vicinity of the terminal, to my knowledge. And then they ended up getting retasked to help with uh, some special recovery missions in regards to, to getting uh, some specific people out. How long does Alpha 18 sit in the D? So we sit in the defense until, so we're there to the 17th, we go through until the 18th, and then the evening, I believe it's the evening of the 18th, we get retasked. And then the retasking was to go to the North Gate. And that's because Bravo Company had, they did have about a squad-ish size element, maybe a little bit more, on the ground on the 15th and the 16th, right? So like there was a small remnant of Bravo, a large portion of Charlie, like all of Charlie Company on the ground on the 15th, all of Alpha on the 15th. But like the rest of Bravo Company kind of arrives on the 17th. And then that company goes up to the North Gate. And that company had been on that gate for more than 24 hours. And, you know, our initial reaction is like, man, like we've been, <laughs> we've been running hard. I mean, luckily, you know, I went down to like a 50%, you know, 25% security. I would rotate it. I would have stand to at your normal hours in the defense. And I was able to get some guys some rest, but, you know, resting in the defense isn't the best rest. <laughs> so, you know, I was kind of looking for like, all right, we're going to come out of this defense and we're going to get a little bit, you know, maybe we'll go back, rest, refit for, you know, a couple hours, right? That wasn't the case. Bravo Company definitely needed a relief. And I think when I saw my fellow company commander up there, you know, he looked like a skeleton. You know what I mean? Just from the the sheer back and forth of that gate and the mental, you know, strain of like figuring out how to deal with the crowd at Northgate and the physical strain of having to deal with the crowd at Northgate. Cause it's just like a wave of people. It's like dealing with the ocean. It's just the waves keep coming and you're, you're this rock and you're just being eroded away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
I think a lot of the, the Marines were a little disgruntled initially. And then I think we realized that like, okay, like if they stayed on this gate any longer, they were, they like, they were going to re- reach tracer burnout as far as their ability to, to conduct that mission. So we ended up taking that over. We got told we we're going to be there, you know, roughly about 12 hours because we we're trying to create a 12 hour rotation. And I think in order to get it right on the right timeline that we wanted, the turnovers that happened, we had to stay there till about 17 hours. So we went from the defense to that to 17 hours on Northgate. Could you walk us through what gate operations look like? I mean, what are some of the challenges you're facing as a commander? What are some of the tough decisions you have to make? Yeah, sure. So it was problem solving in its rawest form is the best way to explain it because you, you did have you know, some of those Afghan units that did not defect. So like the NSU or the NDS units that were really good, like they, the the crowd would respond to them for the most part, but you would run into some issues where they were trying to get their families out or, you know, they knew somebody in the crowd. So you had to, you kind of did have to watch them a little bit, right? But, you know, they would use their weapons as an extension to manage crowd control. Plenty of warning shots going off all the time, firing their AKs in the air to get the crowd to calm down. And I remember when I got to the North Gate, the first thing that happened was the the NSU unit was like, we're leaving. And it's like, all right, we have this very influential, you know, to a degree unit that the crowd responds to respects. And they know that Americans were not going to do some of the things that they're going to do to quell the crowd. Right. So immediately we have this wave of people just rush to the gate and we have no real standoff because... The unique thing about Northgate was that it was the only gate that did not have a Taliban CP or a checkpoint screening anybody. So Northgate has, I think if you look on Google, it's called like Russian Road, but there's really like this like four lane kind of highway that runs east to west uh, where Northgate's at. And, you know, I think for the longest time, you know, our operations officer, our battalion commander, our battalion XO, like all of them like have come to this gate, they've seen it. They're like, we really need to fix the physical security. And, and, you know, we're, we're trying to rack our brains on like, how can we make this gate more tenable? How can we make this gate more feasible to, to operate out of and, and, and bolster the, the physical security that's here. And one of the things we kind of came up with was like, Hey, can we get the Taliban to shut down the road, you know, like on either side and set a checkpoint up, you know, on the East and West anchor points. And they refused to, stop anybody from driving down that road so i mean you're talking within like walking down a sidewalk and a a dump truck comes driving by or a fuel truck and it's like that's a v that could be a vbid you don't know there was definitely some real conversations that were had with the platoon commanders that hey man i can't i can't promise you that you're not going to get hit by a vbid and there's nothing i can do about it and it, it, it literally is a terrible conversation to have as a company command, like I, 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 there, there was nothing we could do. So the only thing that we did in order to like kind of create some standoff in order to get the order of operations down, which I'll get to here in a minute, was create that physical security with a little bit of seawire. So we had the engineers come out, we had them lay in some seawire, which seemed like a good idea initially, but now you have civilians getting cut on the seawire, you have children getting cut on the seawire. You have, you know, women with their burkas getting ripped off. I mean, there's piles of clothes because it's getting caught on the seawire. The stench is just unbearable. And that was the only way we were able to do it because 
you have these two roads coming like this and the gate comes down perpendicular versus East gate and Abbey gate, you had a little bit of a more linear approach. Right. And then you had a Taliban, you know, checkpoint in vicinity of, and I'm not going to say that that was easier because I definitely went down to some of those gates and saw the challenge that it was a different problem set. Right. So, you know, Yes, Northgate was definitely hard to deal with. And I, I, I will not say that that was the hardest gate because I think that any gate that you're on was a hard gate to deal with. And they all had their challenges. But definitely that was the problem set that we were dealing with was these two crowds kind of converging into each other. So how do you block off one side and then let in people on the other side? So as the order of operations would go, you know, you would you would get, you know, your specific requirements of like, all right, bring in people with SIVs you know, bring people in with blue, you know, American passports, visas, right? And now you're talking about an 18-year-old kid having to screen that initially to try to try their best, right? To like not bring in people that are just going to get kicked out because like now we got to deal with pulling manpower to kick them back out the gate, which became a huge problem. And then from there, they would get funneled through the gate, which we, we closed it, closed it to where the crowd couldn't see what was happening behind the wall. And there, there was a group of like Germans that were there, soldiers that helped assist us. They weren't allowed to go outside of the gate. We were allowed to go just outside the gate. We clearly weren't allowed to go into Kabul itself, but we were able to at least set up a, somewhat of a posture outside to quell the crowd. Once they got through that point, there was a little bit of a channel with the physical security of that gate was constructed that allowed for the DOS to have agents there to screen. Right. So they would they would go through, they would talk to them, they would say, Okay, you're you meet the criteria, you go to the left. Right. So to the left, they would, they would go to a detailed search area. In that detailed search area where the Germans were was like a hasty search. Then you had the DOS check, and then you had a detailed search of bags of women getting full searched by the engagement teams that we that, that I wouldn't call them FETs, but they were they were female searchers, right? that were there searching majority of the women uh, and children. And then from there, they would head down a longer road that would take them back to a area where they could get picked up and moved to a holding area on the north side of the base. And then from there, they would, they would get processed and uh, tagged and get onto a C-17. If they didn't meet the criteria, they would go to the right. And we basically had it to where there was some Texas barriers that kind of separated the two lanes. Luckily, the way that it was constructed there it kind of lended itself for us to be able to do that. And there was a turnstile gate. We inevitably called the purge gate uh, where we would purge any of the people that would not meet the criteria. And so initially it was a system that worked relatively okay. Right. But it would work for like six hours and then you would get the crowd would get rowdy and then you'd have to close it. Right. And then you'd have to open up the other side and then you open up the other side and you start pulling them out on the other side. And then that side gets crazy. Then you close that and you just, so you have this hot cold. All right, cool. That's kind of working. And then you would have it to where they would rush in, right? And you would have to fight your way back out to gain the ground that you just lost. And I think one of the most challenging things was that, that the purge gate was, if you, if you were to look on a map, it'd be really easy to, to kind of explain, but there's this turnstile that goes out next to this canal. And it's on the, essentially the right side of where our seawire is. And there's, you know, 16 foot T-walls in between where this purge gate is and where we're bringing people in. So it's, you're, you're essentially contaminating 
the area you're pulling people in because they can just hop back in line and get back through. Right. So, so that was definitely a, a, a challenging time because it was, it was almost like an area that people didn't know about unless they had gone through. And it took the crowd, I think, you know, a couple of days to realize that that gate was there and then they started crowding that gate. So now I can bring people in, but now I got to fight to get people out. And, and that, that definitely became a, a challenging experience of how do you deal with that? You know what I mean? Could you talk about concerns regarding, you know, a typical suicide bomber, just someone, just an individual, you mentioned the Germans doing the hasty search, there are more detailed searches. Any one of these people could have had a simpler, complex bomb on them. How are you guys trying to maintain security and also process these people with the threat imminent always? Mm. I think it just came down to roles and responsibilities and, and just really that keeping that combat hunter mindset, right? Of, you know, one is none, two together makes, makes an indicator. Those type of things that you are trained to do, right? So you're constantly assessing people, you're constantly looking at it, but you're also, you also have to assume some risk, right? And I think roles and responsibilities really helped because, you know, as we rotated the platoons, you know, you have that one platoon that's out there because it takes one platoon just to control the crowd at the entry point, right? Then you have one platoon that's spread between searching, hasty search, detailed search, and then purging people. And then you have another platoon that's literally in a fixed site security providing overwatch, mm-hmm. right? And then we also had snipers located in that position, scanning the crowd, scanning for threats. So it, it became like a, a, a network of observers and, and, and people executing the things that they needed to execute. And we had to rely on each other to make sure that those checks were done effectively. But to tell you that, like, I was able to effectively stop a S-Vest would be asinine. There's no way with how fast we were trying to process and with how volatile the situation that we would have been able to catch everything. So there was a little bit of risk associated with that. But I think that the measures that we put in place gave enough security for us to operate the way that we did. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Just to clarify, at least while Alpha 18 was at the North Gate, the Taliban were not helping. They were not assisting at all. No, I, I think we had one instance where there was like a lone Taliban operative that came up and was trying to talk with the NSU guys and got, kind of got a little hairy because we didn't know who he was or why he was there. We had vehicles drive by, but there was never like a integrated portion of the Taliban being at Northgate, unlike Abbey Gate, unlike Eastgate. So, so there wasn't like a, a localized commander. Like I know Charlie Company, you know, and LAR, they had a localized Taliban dude that they had to work with every day. And like they would set the tone. And if you close the gate, they would force them to open the gate by any means possible because they wanted to get people out. And we didn't, we didn't have that layer of complexity that we had to deal with at our gate. During the evacuation, how did you effectively command your Marines in the face of just so much confusion, ambiguity, danger? How often are you relying on concepts and tools found in MCDP-1 warfighting, 1-TAC-3 tactics, you know, things like commander's intent, implicit communication, surfaces and gaps? I think that the biggest things was effectively communicating, right? Giving a very specific 
and clear commander's guidance and intent with what needed to happen and, and using brevity. And also just the, the nature of being in an R2P2 environment as a Mew, you have to find ways to be comfortable with implicitly communicating with your Marines. Because as a, a Hilo company commander or a raid force commander in general, like you're going to be in the planning space and you're expecting that your guys are doing the right things. They're doing the PCCs, PCIs, they're doing the rehearsals, they're doing the rock talks, they're, they're setting up in serial assignment order. They're doing all of the, the pre-combat actions that need to happen prior to you getting on the plane to go do the mission. So I think the, the nature of the Mew and the way that the Mew trains definitely suited the ability for us to utilize implicit communication to understand the intent. Now, while I say that that was you know, effective throughout and that every Marine understood every single detail of what was happening, no, not at all. I've, I've heard, you know, from my junior Marines tell some of the stories that, you know, from their perspective and some of the word that they got was, you know, it's like a telephone game. It's, it's a white house. And by the time it gets down there, it's a black car, you know, of the information that you're passing. So, you know, it was an imperfect system, but, you know, the small unit leaders, you know, resting, resting intent on their shoulders when needed. And then when finding the time to give more explicit guidance, you know, based off the amount of time given, I think is what really allowed us to be flexible and be uh, allowed us to be effective in a very rapidly deteriorating environment. According to CENTCOM's report on the Abbeygate bombing, I'll read a quote here, Northeast and Abbeygates closed from 20 to 22 August due to a lack of flights and capacity within HKIA. What was Alpha 18 doing during these days? Really, it came down to deliberate defense because we weren't going to give up the ground that we were holding. And we still had a rotation. We still were rotating out with Bravo Company every 12 hours. So really what it came down to is just establishing a deliberate defense on those positions, keeping our eyes and ears outboard and, you know, watching for threats. But it did slow down, but you still had a lot of, you know, people trying to hop the wall, you know, little infiltrations happening here and there. But really just establishing a firm position was what the intent of those next couple of days really was. What was your company doing on 26 August and how did it respond to the Abbeygate bombing? My company had just taken over the North Gate. We were in a firm position. Our gate had closed. We had gotten the order that all gates needed to close. So again, deliberate defense. And we got the call over the radio that there had been a S-Vest at uh, Abbeygate. Initial reports was that there was, you know, I think it was a number of like four KIA, and then that number grew over the next couple hours. My company didn't really have much involvement as far as the Abbeygate bombing went, except for that we were told that we were to expect a VBID, and that was imminent on Northgate. So that was the only really change in the baseline as far as the enemy situation with ISIS was that, A, there's a possible VBIED threat every day, right? But this was a little bit more specific that we were expected to take a VBIED, you know, almost, you know, immediately after the bombing went off. You could tell that there was a, it was, it was very somber. The Marines were definitely grieving the loss of their, their brothers and sisters. 
you could tell there was some tension in the air for the Marines. What was your company doing after 26 August, but before its departure from HKIA? After the bombing on the 26th, we really just kind of maintained our position on the North Gate. And I think it was the 28th or 29th. Once we started getting close to the 30th, a lot of the other companies started to retrograde. And we had gotten told, I think it was on the 22nd or the 23rd by the battalion commander that we were expected to be the last company to leave, at least from the BLT. 2-1 ended up leaving a couple of days after the bombing, from my knowledge. And we ended up turning over the gate to the 82nd on the 29th. And it was very, very eerie. You could almost hear like a pin drop in all of Kabul. I think the Taliban took security very seriously. The, the gates became barren. There wasn't really a lot of people at those gates anymore. And people were still being processed through other means. People were coming through. I couldn't tell you exactly who was pulling these people in, but I knew that our Marines did spend a good bit of time processing people at the terminal up until the last day. Could you talk a little more about the last day? You and your Marines had been through hell and back. What was it like to leave the airport? Were there any significant events that happened that day for Alpha 1-8? I remember we had to sweep the area just to make sure that all the buildings were, you know, we weren't leaving anybody behind because there was still a lot of, there's some contractors and some DOS and civilian personnel that were there. So I remember we went through, we swept everything in the morning, we staged at the terminal. And I think there was, you know, the Marines were very proud of what they achieved, you know, up until that point and achievement in in being able to be flexible in a very deteriorating situation and achieve success and do what Marines do and and that's win. And that I think was a a proud moment for the company. The only other real SIG act that happened, which in true fashion was that we were supposed to take IDF at six 15 or 6 30 in the morning and i think it was late by 15 minutes we we're a little unimpressed and it ended up landing on the, the southern portion of the the airfield way away from us and uh, the marines got to see the c ram go off so everybody was pretty excited about that but other than that it was you know guys you know getting to take some pictures got to see the last american flag flown over uh hkia and got on a plane and headed back to kuwait so departing hkia getting to kuwait what did you observe in your Marines in the aftermath of the mission? I mean, how were they dealing with what they'd seen and done? How were you coping with the aftermath? So the weird part about Kuwait was that we got back and everybody got COVID, at least like the head shed. I don't know how it happened, but I got COVID like pretty bad. I was actually down hard for probably about like 10 days and my XO was tied to me because he ended up getting it too, but he was completely fine. I don't know why it hit me so hard. But uh, the Marines, I didn't really get to see my Marines in the first like kind of week when I really wanted to because I was kind of put into this isolation portion of, uh, you know, in, in segregated in my room. So I didn't like spread COVID to anybody. But I know that we had talked with the platoon commanders about, hey, like, it's okay to not be okay. You know, it's okay to open up about how you feel. Like what we went through was not normal. It's not natural. And that's going to result in a lot of, you know, different emotions. And having, you know, a father who who suffered from PTSD 
We'd been in the Marine Corps for a very long time and watching that deteriorate in him was very important for me to message to my Marines. And the fact that like we are a tribe, you know, we are a tribe of people, a tribe of warriors and a family. And the most important thing is to look out for each other is what I messaged. And you, you could tell that, there, you know, the Marines were definitely going through and reliving a lot of those things, whether it be jokingly, whether it be individually. And I think the Mew did a bang up job making sure that there was a good amount of counselors available. I couldn't tell you the numbers of how many Marines utilized those services, but they definitely flew a team in there that specialized in it to, to help a lot of the Marines process everything that they kind of went through. What advice would you give future leaders on handling a situation like that? They've just been through this insane experience and they're watching their Marines relive these situations. And yes, there are different resources they can avail themselves of, but what would you say to a future lieutenant, company commander who maybe has to experience something similar? I would say trust in the, the way that the Marine Corps trains their if I'm speaking specifically to infantrymen, trust in the way that the Marine Corps trains you. And, you know, everybody, you know, at least me, you know, you think you, you hear the things you hear at TBS when you have these giants that are your IOC instructors that you look up to and they tell you these stories, you know, and you, you go through the human factors and you go through all of these things that point you in the direction of like, this is what you need to prepare for, right? Your Marines are not going to care when you're tired. They're not going to care when you're hungry, when they're getting shot at, and they need you to make a decision. And that's like, you know, drilled into your head as a young lieutenant is that you need to be the guy that can, that can bear it. And, you know, at times when you get into situations like that, and, you know, it's always the question of like, what am I going to do whenever I get in a combat situation? What am I going to do when this situation's deteriorating? And, and what I found was you're just going to do what you're trained to do. And that's the bottom line. And that's what I relied on. And that's what got me through it and got me to make good decisions, you know, the best decisions I can make in the moment. You know what I mean? And I, I'm not saying that every decision I made was great. I'm not saying that, like, I crushed it as a company commander. I think that any infantry officer given the opportunity would rise to that occasion. You know what I mean? Because it's what we're bred to do. And I think that to try to prepare for stuff like this, there's definitely resources out there. There's definitely schoolhouses that train you on, on certain things, but there is only certain things that can be only be experienced. And I think that the, you know, IOC and TBS and, you know, the discussion games and the, the sand table exercises and in listening to, to people who have experienced very volatile situations they relied back on their training. That's what got them through it, you know? And I think if I was telling a young lieutenant, like, how do you get through this or a company commander or whatever, you just, you got to make sure you prepare for it now. That's for sure. Like teaching your Marines how to operate off of minimal guidance and intent and build implicit communication and do everything in that little white Bible that we call the MCDP one and live by that and train them to be able to be effective at utilizing that doctrine. And then when you get in the moment, rely back on that training. What was it like returning home to Camp Lejeune? It's my understanding that many people, to include many Marines aboard Lejeune, had no real idea of the intensity of the mission or that you guys were exchanging fire with the Taliban. I mean, could you just speak to that experience? It was interesting because the I know the information that was being given and, and all that stuff was a little bit different, right? 
But uh, I think the Marines were proud to tell their story. I, I think it was hard in some cases to get people to understand. And, and, and people, you know, at the end of the day, people aren't going to understand because you had to be there to generally experience it. But with social media the way it is and the ability to have stuff in, it, in a snapshot and have this phone at your fingertips and videos being taken all over the place, they, like people knew enough, I think. There was a warm welcome for the most part. I think it was challenging initially because, you know, Marines had to reintegrate with their families, you know, just, just me reintegrating with my own family, you know, like at one point we had, you know, women passing babies over seawire to us, as I'm sure you've seen all the pictures. It's like, you go home and you hold your kid and you're like, you know, this is like full circle, you know? So there's definitely a lot of that kind of going on emotionally. And I think that right now, at least right, we haven't had a lot of We've had mental health issues and there is mental health issues for sure. But I think that, again, the tribe has done a good job of watching out for each other. And I hope I hope the tribe continues to do that. And I hope that if there is a young Marine that was on HKI that's listening to this podcast, that they know that they can reach out to anybody that was there and that they would bend over backwards to get them the support they need. You mentioned the effect of social media, of Marines having access to phones. You know, it's my understanding that the Marines who were at HGAIA, many of them had phones, they had access to computers, the internet. Could you talk about the effect this had on operations, if, if any, or morale or discipline? It's just like back here in the rear. I mean, you tell Marines not to bring their phones to the field. I mean, unless you physically make them dump their pack in front of you, they're going to have it on them. I didn't really see a degradation in discipline. I didn't really see a degradation in OPSEC because, I mean, we were using cell phones at one point to command and control, you know? I did see a lot of videos come out. I did see a lot of stuff of people posting things that they probably shouldn't have been posting. That definitely happened, but I didn't really see it manifest itself into like a something that denied our ability to conduct operations. But it was a strange experience to be in that situation and have somebody try to call you you know, right after the Abbey Gate bombing goes off, you know, and you're like, like, I'm not taking that phone call. You know what I mean? It was definitely a, a different experience to what I've, I'm used to where you're having to use a sat phone or a, a dedicated line just to call back home or get on an email just to talk to your wife. Sam, could you talk about the role of discipline in your company during the evacuation? How are you seeking to maintain it? What worked well? What didn't? To be honest, I had a really, really good first art. I mean, I, I know every company commander will say that their first art is the best first art in the Marine Corps, right? But I really, truly felt that way with my first sergeant. And it's like, what does a first sergeant do in this situation? You know, where like you have people <laughs> spread out and it's like, hey, first sergeant, what are our numbers? He's like, I have no clue, you know? And he led from the front and he enforced a lot of those things, you know, because Marines are going to start. They're going to see a soft guy or they're going to see whatever, and they're going to start trying to roll their sleeves or they're going to try to start putting stuff in their dump pouch when it's like, dude, what are we doing? Like, that was never acceptable before. Like, we need to not do that, right? So I think really just resetting anytime we kind of had to do something was that PCC, PCI line. Like, all right, we're resetting. Get your stuff together. Make sure your stuff's tight. You know, and I, and I think Marines started to realize, you know, that, that they needed to maintain some level of discipline. But the exhaustion piece added on top of that definitely waned a lot, you know, where you start having guys sit down 
right? Like we would not let people sit down on the flight line because, you know, during that first couple of days, because it shows a sign of weakness, right? And my Sergeant Major was really good about making sure that Marines held that line and we were out there with them holding that line and showing strength by standing there and not sitting down, you know, taking our Kevlar's off, taking our equipment off. And it, it was a fight. And there was times where like, it definitely dropped for sure. But I think Marines understood the seriousness of the situation and they wouldn't let it slip until we were in a area where, you know, security was kind of in a good spot. Right. And then it, it was, it was pretty easy to clean up for the most part. Would you talk about the logistics aspect of the evacuation, specifically some of the supply challenges that you faced? I know you talked about radios and, and comm, but are there other things that came up logistics-wise that were challenges for your company specifically? We didn't really have too many logistical problems. I mean, I know there was one point where like they were saying that we weren't going to get water, we weren't going to, like there, there wasn't enough food, but it never really manifested itself to the point where like we had to go down to you know, like one MRE. And like, honestly, with how much stuff we were doing during that period, sometimes you just didn't have time to eat or drink. So anytime that we needed stuff, we were able to get it. And it didn't seem like it was that big of an issue for the chow and, and water situation. There was a point where like our gunner ended up getting like every single dotic for, you know, non-lethal in like CENCOM, it felt like to HKIA. And, and we burned through a lot of that, you know, it went down, but Again, like it, there would only be a small lapse and we would have enough to continue to do what we needed to do. But uh, logistically, not too many major issues, at least from my perspective. Could you describe what it was like to watch your Marines bring rejected civilians back to the gate? You said that there was a purge gate. How did Marines deal with that? How did you? Were there any particular episodes that stand out to you? I think the Marines generally handle it well. I think when it was women and children, it was hard. I could see it on their faces. When it was like a military-age male, depending on what the circumstance, like, I mean, I, I remember one time there was a military-age male that came through and he had taken a baby from a woman and acted like it was his. And then once he got through the gate, he was like, this is not mine. I'm going to America. That was handled a little bit more aggressively, if you will. But we luckily had majority of our unit leaders consolidated into like a COC around that area. So we could definitely keep an eye on generally a lot of those operations for the most part. We would fan out from that location to go to different points of friction, but there was never really over the top handling of personnel unless they were being combative, in which case we had to make the situation safe. What actions of your Marines at HKIA make you proudest? I would say the proudest moment is really whenever we were faced with those gunmen that came and the restraint, the restraint. I mean, you can't, you can train that to a certain degree, but you can't, you can't make it happen. You know what I mean? It, it just, it happens naturally. And to see them go from have every reason, you know, logically to, to fire their weapon, you know, and not do it at all against a civilian because they know that like, they're there to help these people that they're holding back every restraint, even though they're not listening to them, that they're fighting with them every waking second that they're on that flight line. And to just hold that restraint, to neutralize a threat, and then to immediately say, okay, I'm back to helping you, was an amazing and beautiful moment for me as a company commander, because that could have gone so many other ways. 
it could have gone so many other ways that would have tarnished every single thing that those Marines did up until that point. Sam, you talked about it earlier in the interview, but I'd like to go a little deeper. What are your thoughts on the role and value of decision games, things like decision forcing cases, TDGs, and, and training and educating Marines specifically for a mission like what you faced at HKIA? I think it builds implicit communication. It gets Marines to critically think about why they're making decisions if they're done correctly. And there's somebody leading it that's Socratically questioning why they're making the decision they're making or what their thought process is. And what we did on the, on the ship was a TDG Thursday or decision game Thursday. And we would have a different lieutenant usually lead that and they would come up with any decision game they wanted to have and then walk through the process of like why one platoon commander wants to do this. And I think that really does help gain an understanding of like self-assessment and like why they think the way they do and then give a different perspective of how somebody else would solve the problem. And it helps them open their mind to not just a singular option of it's always going to be, you know, fix and flank, or it's always going to be this specific action that I'm going to take. And I think that does help with like building situational awareness to when we're in a situation wherein you don't have time. Right. And maybe you're in that situation that you did a decision game that's similar or that you learned something that allows you to, to rapidly make a decision in a, a time compressed environment and lends to a model of giving a task and purpose vice having to do a drawn out process of analysis and planning. So I think it lends itself more to like an R2P2 style environment. But it also does help if you did want to do longer analysis because you're getting a ton of information soaked in every single time you do it. So I'd like to get your take on this. For, for a while now, speaking with colleagues, I've been proposing that we scrap most of the ethics package at TBS and similar classes for enlisted entry-level Marines and replace them with decision-forcing cases, TDGs, ethical decision games based on the experiences of Marines at HKIA. What do you think about this idea? I think incorporating decision forcing cases and TDGs and, and adding more is definitely value added. I think there is a value to you know the ethics portion of things, especially for a young platoon commander if they're trying to navigate something that is not tactical, right? That is not standard because that's where you know an SPC or an instructor can get up and explain like, hey, I have this staff sergeant that has this family problem, right? But even even if it's tied to like a non-combatant evacuation, like, all right, the crowd is being unruly. Do you shoot into the crowd? Like, no, you don't. Right. And it's an easy answer as we're sitting in these chairs. But if you were to explain all of the things that led up to that, that could be a good ethics discussion of like, where do you draw the line on somebody that is causing hostile and potential bodily harm to you? But I think putting it in a model where they have to make a decision versus just a discussion I think would be more effective. Did the Marine Corps send anyone from the Center for Lessons Learned or the History Division to interview you or other members after the HKIA mission? And if so, what were some of the things discussed? And do you know what's being done with those interviews? I don't know what's being done, but it was just basically a experience. Give your experience, give the recollection of like what you went through, what your company went through, what similar to what we're doing right now, but but more so tied to a timeline and significant events that happened. But they did send people down in, I think it was December, December or January. And we were afforded the opportunity to 
share our experiences, but I, I do not believe I know what their plan is to do with all of those interviews. From what you could tell, was it comprehensive? I mean, were a lot of people in the battalion interviewed or was it key leaders? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, I, th- I think it was pretty comprehensive. I know they, they had battalion operations officer, the gunner, the battalion commander, myself, a couple other company commanders, some platoon commanders, some squad leaders. I think the engineers, platoon commander, a bunch of different enablers were able to give their experience. So it, it wasn't just a singular focus of just one eight. It was the whole BLT and their ability to give their experience. What's the one thing that you'd like Marines and other service members to know about what Alpha 1-8 did at HKIA? I think specifically is that we went in there knowing the information we knew, and we were dealing with a rapidly deteriorating situation. And I think we did what any other service member or infantry, MOS, combat arms MOS would have done and, and figured it out. And, and we found a way to win. And I think that that is a message that can be shared and can be embraced amongst all services is that, you know, together we did it as a team. We did it the best that we could with the amount of time that we had and the resources that we had and that the American military and the Marine Corps in general is going to find a way to win regardless of the situation that they're put in. Sam, I know it was not easy to talk about what we discussed and I can't thank you enough. It's, I think, a testament to you and your Marines of what you guys and gals did out there. I'm, I don't know if excited is the the right word, but for lack of a better term, excited to share this with the society and, and hopefully a larger audience, particularly service members. But as I ask all my guests, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? I would just say that I'm humbled to have the opportunity to come on here and speak with you. I don't do this out of my own personal gain. I do this for my Marines. I do it for the Marines in the Marine Corps in general. I've shied away from a lot of interviews. And I guarantee you all my brothers that went to HKI and sisters that went to HKI have been asked to go on different talk shows, different podcasts. But what enticed me to do this interview was to share educational knowledge and experience. And I feel like this podcast is about that. It's about professionalism. It's about education. It's not about the person on the podcast. So, you know, please, you know, don't come down too hard on me for for sharing my story because it's not about me. It's about the Marines and what they went through. And uh, that's that's what I want uh, everybody to know. Sam, thanks so much. Yeah, no problem.